So we're starting off with Daniel. So I think we've got about 10 to 12 of these in a row. Um, <coughs> we may have a break in the middle and do something different just to keep it fresh. But let me begin. Look, I ought to say right, th- right at the beginning, although Greg read the whole chapter, we're only going to cover two verses of the first chapter today. And we'll try and do the whole chapter next time in one go. Look, here's one of the stories, one of these stories you may have heard, you know, they get told over and over again. So this is one that came my way. There was a young man who uh, landed up on the shores of a prosperous nation and there began to make a life for himself. It wasn't long before he got back into his old habits of criminality and was just really uh, breaking the law at every opportunity. Got, got a family to himself and before long he be- Criminality became a family-run business. With each infringement of the law, the state upped the ante until eventually they deported the family thousands of miles away to go and make a mess of that environment. Finding himself now in a penal colony, he became more and more depraved, eventually corrupting his new penal colony mates. you think, wouldn't you, that given this opportunity of a life in a new environment, that he would join the straight and narrow, but instead he's spiralling ever deeper into mischief and criminality. I don't know how the story ends. We've yet to see where that goes. But the country that he left, this young man, was Great Britain. It's how it used to be known, and most of us refer to it as the UK or even England these days. The country he left was Great Britain. The country he was banished to was obviously Australia. The state was South Australia, and the young man was Montaz Alley. (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't really, and that story isn't even real. But here's the reality, and here's why I tell it. That sums up something of the context of Daniel. I've dramatised, you know, it's a bit of humour, but the reality is it tells us something about what was happening in Daniel's day. Let me take you to the beginning of how the Israelites got ejected from their land and were because of their evil and because of their continued disobedience, the Israelites of the Jewish nation started life back with Abraham. Genesis 12, God gave them Abraham a promise. I think it'll come up on the screen for us. That he, the promise consisted of three things, that he would make them into a great nation. He would give them a land of their own. And that through the Jewish nation, he would bless every nation of the world. You know, the history of the Jewish race goes back to that one text of the Bible. So they began to expand and grow. Eventually, by the time the book of Exodus starts, this one small family had become two and a half million. Except they weren't the conquerors in Canaan. They were the conquered in Egypt. They were slaves to Pharaoh. They served him and built his city. Was there, God raised up Moses, who, through the spectacular plagues that we're so familiar with, delivered the Jews, 
gave them their liberty, led them through the desert, and over the 40-year period, eventually uh, being succeeded by Joshua, they became, they became known as Israel. They came into a covenant, a, a binding relationship with God. It was on God's terms, and here's where they realized that in order for them to relate to God, it, was, it always had to be on God's terms. And so the covenant, along with the Ten Commandments, was established eventually through Joshua. They conquered the land. They entered the land. They got the land. They were a great nation. But it wasn't long before they were up to their old ways, spiraling downwards into depravity. But when God set up the covenant, he warned them. Deuteronomy, the next one, please, 30. I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. If your heart turns away and you're not obedient, verse 18, you will not live long in the land you will cross in the Jordan to enter and possess. God warned them. But nevertheless, they spiraled downwards increasingly towards godlessness. God had to raise up judges. These were spirit-anointed people who led them from this, this ever-spiraling downward trend to faithfulness towards God. But even then, in between every judge, we're told this. Listen to this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Even with the judges, things weren't much better. So God gave them kings. It's what they wanted. He gave them Saul, who was a terrible king. Eventually, David came to prominence, and he led the Israelites to renewal of the covenant. I mean, we've just broken bread. Do you know what this meal is? It's a covenantal renewal meal. When we break bread, we're saying to God, we're renewing the covenant, that we trust in the blood of Jesus, and that we're committing ourselves to godliness and to holiness. So they renewed the covenant under David. And for a while, there was prosperity in the land. There was spirituality in the land. But with David's death and with the succession of other kings, the kingdom was divided. Ten tribes formed Israel. Two tribes formed Judah. And things began to spiral downwards again. The northern kingdom was far worse. There, there was no continued dynasty there. And so from one king to another, the flavor of the country changed and God became so impatient with their continual disregard for his law that in 722 BC, he sent in the Assyrians. They removed the people from the land, those 10 tribes, and they never returned to the land. The southern kingdom was of the two more spiritual, but they continued, even after seeing what God had done to the northern kingdom, continued in their unfaithfulness to the covenant. So eventually, eventually, God washed his hands with them too, as we were, and sent in the Babylonians. It began in 605 BC. It came in three waves. The first wave... Uh, the Babylonians who'd conquered the Assyrians were in war with the Egyptians and en route captured some Israelites, took them back. We think in that first, uh, first wave of taking exiles into 
Babylon, we think that's when Daniel and his three buddies were taken. Judah had a reprieve for a bit, but they continued in their unfaithfulness. And so Nebuchadnezzar returned. This time he killed their king, Jehoiakim, and exported 10,000 of the Jews. And there was respite again for a period. And they still continued to be oblivious and disregard the covenant, the commands, the Ten Commandments. And so God sent Nebuchadnezzar back, this time with vengeance. He besieged the city and for about a period of 18 months, there was utter, utter famine. In fact, the famine was so severe that some Jews became cannibals to separate. The girls were raped, the women were slaughtered, Pregnant women were disemboweled. This was akin to the Holocaust to come. There were terrible days as Nebuchadnezzar unleashed his fury on this city, demolishing it, burning the temple, burning the city, killing the majority, leaving some of the poorer to maintain the land so that he could, he could benefit from it, and removing the, 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 the high escalons, the, the middle classes, to Babylon to use them for his service. It was the end of Israel, or so it seemed. And it's, in, it's into that context, into that scenario, that Daniel, the book of Daniel, begins. That's why I give you all that history. Without that history, Daniel means nothing. Daniel begins where that history leaves off. And so when we read those opening verses of Daniel chapter 1, it's the only verses we're going to look at this morning. In the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of, of uh, Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It's the second wave. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. When we read Daniel our first thoughts have to be, oh my word, what on earth is happening here? Remember Genesis 12. You'll be a great nation. You'd possess a land and I'll bless the world through you. And here's the Israelites in another country under rule. What on earth is going on here? That's the first thing we're meant to think when we read the book of Daniel, that there is something terribly wrong. Do you know one of the hardest obstacles to reaching people with the message of Jesus? Is that they don't realize there's something wrong. One of the, most, one of the difficulties can be with the church is that we don't sometimes realize there's something amiss. When we open Daniel, the first two verses tell us, friends, that there's something terribly wrong. This isn't normal. This is not how it's meant to be. The Israelites are not meant to be under occupation. They're meant to be in the land. There's something terribly, terribly wrong. But here's the thing. No doubt, if you were a Jew in that time and you survived, you'd be thinking, not only is this political, not only, not only have we failed politically, we've lost the country. But this is theological. God 
has failed. God is dead. Remember we said that the Babylonians did? What did they do to the temple? The temple of God, where the presence of God dwells, what did they do to it? Destroyed it. In destroying the temple, they had destroyed God. This was defeat, not only of the Jewish nation politically, but of the Jewish God, Yahweh. He is dead, gone. In fact, the, uh, the, the, the Babylonians, in order to humiliate the God of the Israels, they took some of the artifacts of Israel's God and placed them in their own temples as trophies. We have defeated Yahweh. And so no doubt in the minds of the Israelites is that God is dead. And so Daniel begins with these amazing words. Listen to this verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. What point are the opening verses of Daniel making? Right at the beginning of this book. What point are they making? Israel thinks that God is dead. And Daniel begins. God's in charge. Thank you, Pamela. God is not dead. This is him speaking from the grave, as it were. I am not dead. I am very much alive. Oh, what's more? Listen to this. Listen to the theology in this verse. What's more, Israel? I want you to know. I sanctioned your exile. I'm not only not dead, I'm very much alive, and it's me who you have defied time and time and time again in disobeying my covenant. I have sent you into exile. Wow. It's a powerful reminder, friends, that God is capable of bringing judgment to his world. And he's done that here for Israel. In our remaining quarter of an hour or so, I want to leave that as the backdrop. If you can imagine we're doing some painting, it's not my expertise, but just imagine I'm doing some with you. I've just painted uh, a sketch of the background. That's the context, is where we are in Daniel. Let me just give you now where we're going over the next few weeks, beginning with this context. And so my first setting is this. Let me show you how we can take away something from this morning beyond just mere biblical history. Although it's not mere biblical history, there's nothing mere about biblical history, okay? <laughs> history of the Bible. I want to give you three short points. Firstly, this. The context of our lives will at times reveal God's discipline. The context of our lives will at times reveal God's discipline. We said, didn't we, it was after centuries of warnings, sending prophet after prophet after prophet, that God finally exiled the northern kingdom in 722 and now the southern kingdom in 586 BC. Deuteronomy 30, look, I remind you of the verse I read earlier. I set before you today life 
and prosperity, death and destruction on the terms of the covenant. And so if you turn your hearts away and you're not obedient to me, you will not long live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Here's the message, friends. It's very simple. God takes sin seriously. It's the bottom line. God takes sin seriously. And in fact, so seriously, if our sin is left unrepented, if we're left without turning to Jesus in faith, if we're left without repentance towards Jesus, here's God's warning to us. It's a warning to every one of us here. Revelation chapter 20. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's the warning of the scriptures to every one of us in this world. That if we continue in our sin, without repentance towards Jesus, without faith in Jesus, we will ultimately face the consequences of those sins in an eternal hell. That's not Montez's message from Great Britain. That's the message of the Bible. That if we remain in our sins without faith in Jesus and repentance towards him, then ultimately we will suffer personally the eternal weight of those sins in hell. For those of us who have come to faith, and I trust for that's all of us, if not the majority of us here, for those of us who have come to faith in Christ and who are living in repentance towards Jesus, here's the verse for you and I. Therefore, because we believe in Jesus, because we've confessed our sins to him, because we're putting him first in our lives and we're shunning evil, here's the text for us, that is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah! Okay, as the first word I want to give to you, that if you're in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, if you're living for Jesus, that is now, regardless, any more condemnation. Because why? Why is there no more condemnation? Because Jesus has suffered condemnation. That's what the cross is about. He was condemned to hell. Have you ever thought of it like that? The cross is the condemnation of Jesus to hell. I know he went to hell because what did he say during the moments on the cross? My God, my God. What is hell? Someone tell me what hell is. Where God isn't. Eternal separation from God. Jesus was in hell on the cross. And because he's faced our hell, that is now. You either Blot out, erase, delete the cross. And you can't do that. Or there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Is the first thing I want to say to you, because it's going to hurt him in a minute, is that the people of God can now, n- now no longer be condemned for sin. That includes my sin this afternoon. I like your car, David. It may be gone from the car park after the service. It includes my sin next week and the sin after that. 
there is now no hell for those in Christ Jesus. But, you knew there was going to be a but, didn't you? But, listen to this in Hebrews 12. Have you forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. God will not condemn us, will not abandon us when we continue to go on in sin as believers because the cross pays the penalty for every sin, but he will do what for our sin? If we continue in sin with disregard and Unconcern, what will he do in response to our sins? Discipline us. So what's happening to Israel? He hasn't abandoned them. He's disciplining them. He's brought them to Babylon to prune them, as it were. To give them another chance, as it were. You see, the thing about discipline... It's done, and those verses demonstrated, it's done in love, but it hurts. It's done in love, but it hurts. Sometimes the circumstances of our lives, the context of our lives, reveal God's discipline. I want to challenge us with this. Am I prepared to look afresh in my life and ask this tough question. Is the context of my life evidence that I am under God's discipline? Are we prepared to ask that question? Are we prepared to look into our hearts and lives, our conduct, what our eyes look at, where our thoughts go, what our mouths say, where we put ourselves, how we relate to one another. Are we prepared to look at our lives? Forget him. What about me? And ask those difficult questions. Where is the unrepentance in my life? Where is the habitual sin in my life that I'm keeping hold of? God, I, I don't mind giving up that sin, but I love this sin. It's my favorite. It's me. If you take this sin away from me, I won't be me. It's me. Often it's more subtle, isn't it? It's, it's what we never talk about. It's what we do when no one else notices. It's what we even deny that we do. Are we prepared to ask ourselves the difficult question? Is the context of my life evidence that I'm under God's discipline? Here's Christopher Ash, and here's a response to that for every one of us, for me, for you. The Bible doesn't just call non-Christians to repent and believe. That's a fallacy, you see. It calls Christians to repent and believe. And it does so today and every day. When we become Christians, we do not leave repentance and faith. On the contrary, we enter into a life which consists of daily repentance. And daily faith, I think I said to one of our team members recently, look, you might think this is bizarre, but, but I often, almost daily, re-say the sinner's prayer. 
Not because I need to be reconverted every day, but because I need to come to God afresh every day in repentance, in acknowledgement of my sin, in awareness of God's potential discipline or possible discipline, and seek mercy. And can I encourage you, friends? There is no condemnation, but there is discipline. And it hurts. You know that, don't you? Keep short accounts. Let's come to God in repentance. Every time we break bread, it's a covenant renewal celebration, which means as we come, before we dip that bread and eat that, eat that wafer or whatever it may be, there needs to be this soul search. There needs to be God. I'm about to renew my covenant. When I had that bread and drunk that wine, I was saying I'm renewing my vows of being faithful to you. Am I? Let me ask, which one of us here, before we took the bread, renewed the covenant by looking into our hearts and saying, sorry God, for the terrible life I've lived this week. I leave that behind now, I begin afresh, I renew my covenant with you, and then I dip the bread and eat it. That's how we do communion. That's how communion is meant to be done. And so the first point is, is the context of our lives will at times reveal God's discipline he does it because he loves us and he does it because he wants to turn us from sin. Secondly, amidst trial, God shows great love and grace to his own. Amidst trial, God shows great love and grace to his own. You see, God could have abandoned Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and the rest of the Israelites. After all, that's what he did to the northern kingdom. And that's what their sins deserved, that broken the covenant. For he has mercy on them. Amidst their trial, God shows great love and grace to his own. And we're going to see that throughout Daniel. In chapter 1 next week, we'll see how, uh, how Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are all selected for fast-track promotion within Babylon. In chapter 2, we'll see how Daniel gets promoted to a most senior rank because of what he does for the king. In chapter 3, we'll see that the three guys being, being, being delivered from fire supernaturally and rising through the ranks of Babylonian life. In chapter 6, we'll see that famous episode of Daniel in the den, in the den. And how as a consequence of that, he rises through the ranks of the kingdoms there. What we'll see is in the weeks to come, friends, in the book of Daniel, and particularly 7 to 12, the eschatological stuff, we'll see finally God speaking to the Israelite nation and saying, look, however bad it is now, it's going to get better, a whole lot better. There's a wonderful and prosperous future ahead of you, Israel. So God is saying. And so in the book we see, friends, that amidst trial, God shows great love and grace to his own. He doesn't write us off. And if you've been challenged by my first point, and if you're looking at your life and you're thinking, boy, he's speaking to me, or God is speaking to me, because I know that sin has taken root in my life, and I like it that way, and I don't want to leave it behind. Hey, friend, God doesn't write you off. Okay? but he wants you back in relationship with him. He wants you to turn your back on sin. And he promises, he promises, look, he promises grace and love and deliverance from our situations, from our difficulties, from our 
perplexities. He did it for Hananiah. He did it for Mishael. He did it for Azariah when they faced the furnace. That in that situation, in that country, because of the sins of the forefathers, but God shows grace. He doesn't write them off. He delivers them. He's what the Apostle Paul, the great Christian in the New Testament says, when he's in a predicament, we don't know if this has anything to do with his own uh, difficulties in life or the sins of others, but this is what he writes. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. In our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but God has delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us again. Paul's theology about expecting God to deliver was anchored in Israel. Because he knew, he knew as a Pharisee of Pharisees that God does not wash his hands with his people. God will not wash his hands with us however deep we go into sin as believers. And he wants to lure us out of it. And he wants to show us grace and perhaps, friends, he wants to show us deliverance from our per perplexities. Look, whatever your plight, and it may have nothing to do with sin, it may just be the circumstances of your life, whatever your plight and whatever your trial, God has not given up on you. And you're only one step away from your circumstances reversing. You're one miracle away from your circumstance looking completely different. Have you realized that? Look, here's the reality. Look, in and of yourself, you could probably do nothing or little to change your present situation of difficulty and hardship and perplexing difficulties and whatever else it may be. But God can do one miracle right now. And in a moment, your entire life may look different. Your situation at home, your work situation, your situation with children, your situation with life, your situation with personal demons, whatever that may be. Friends, let me encourage you. We're only ever one miracle away from everything changing. And in God, we have hope of such Miracles. And finally, and just quickly, I'm going to round up now. God himself enters into our world to deliver us from despair. That's, that's the message of chapter 7 to 12. Verse, chapter 7, listen to this. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. His dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who is this son of man? It's Jesus. Luke 21, the son of man coming in the cloud with great power and glory for your redemption is drawing near. Here's the reality, friends. The solution for the world's troubles, whether geological, astronomical, political or anthropological, I think I just about got that word out, the solution for all this reality that we face, friends, that the news that we hear is not better education. It won't work. 
It's not better education. It's not better pollution control. It's not even better criminal laws being passed. The only solution for the world we see and the trouble and the mess we see is God. He alone is the solution. And in Jesus, his promises in Daniel 7 to 12, his promises that one day at the end of time, he will step onto the planet one final time, establish his kingdom on earth, turn it into paradise. Not the suburb over there, but the real paradise. And we will reign, we will own the earth, we will live on the earth, and there'll be one king who will lead us and rule us and provide equality, equity, peace, and everlasting life. That's the book of Daniel. That's the hope we have that the end of time will see the return of God and a kingdom established. Is this son of man, this great guy who comes down from the skies and establishes kingdom? Let me tell you, look, guys, I'm a real sad guy. Look, I'm going to tell you into a secret. Don't tell anybody. I'm going to lose all my street cred. Sometimes I read the results of Formula One to see who's won, to make sure it's my favourite driver before I watch the race. <laughs> and then I can sit down and enjoy it, knowing he's going to win. There's nothing worse than watching two hours of a race for your favourite guy to lose on the last lap. You and I sit with a book open. We've read the final chapter. We win. Jesus returns. He establishes paradise. We get everlasting life. Now sit down and enjoy the race. Because we win. We win. We know the end. God himself enters into our world to deliver us from despair and establishes paradise. That's the message of Daniel. It's where we're going if Jesus doesn't come before we get to the end and establishes the paradise before we can talk about it. Please come back next week. God bless you.